Um, we're beginning a new series today called Advent, God's Greatest Gift, where we are going to be discussing the generosity of God. Um, and we're going to be hearing from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21 today. If you have your Bible with you, if you would, uh, don't mind turning there. Um, also, if you didn't bring your Bible but would like to um, use a copy of the Word, there should be one um, in a seat uh, near you underneath. And if you don't own a Bible, we're just going to offer that you take that one home as a gift um, from us to you. So again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. And when you get there, if you don't mind standing for the reading of God's word. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is God's word. You may be seated. Sorry for that. Good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. Almost, right? We can say that for the next, like, 25 days, okay? So I'm excited about that. Before I get going, I just wanted to echo what Lauren has already said, which is um, I wanted to say a huge thank you to those who made the church look beautiful. And I have some names here that I just wanted to say a special thank you to. There are people who do this every single week and, and uh, are making sure that the church looks uh, nice and presentable and clean. Uh, and these uh, people just went above and beyond. So I just wanted to say thanks to Amy and Nathan Warner, Diane Van Dees, Julie Weaver, Katie Hendricks, Chelsea Erpley, and then Megan Gaston, who kind of put it all together. So they might be here, they might not, but if you guys will give them a hand clap for doing such a great job. This morning, we're going to be kicking off our Advent uh, sermon series, and we're gonna, this will lead us all the way into our Christmas Eve gathering, which will be on a, a Monday evening. So <clears throat> if you haven't already made plans to be there to invite your friends, family, neighbors, we'd love for you to, to do that uh, and to consider coming out on Christmas Eve. But we're going to be talking about um, God's greatest gift, the gift of his son Jesus, and how that should shape us and mold us into being generous people. Um, this time of year, it's the time of year that things start to get festive. Uh, you've probably already kind of seen that in your, in your neighborhoods, lights on the houses. Maybe you've already got your tree in your living room. Hopefully there is joy in your heart. We just went through that all fall. So if, you're, if it's not there, uh, set up a meeting for counseling. All right? Um, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Uh, Christmas time represents a lot of things. Uh, maybe in your childhood, uh, it represented a time of great joy. I hope that it did. Uh, but I'm not assuming that on you, and I would imagine that for some of us, it might even represent some childhood pain. Uh, it can represent great times of family togetherness, but it can also, for some, represent times of loneliness and of isolation. Uh, Christmas time's a busy time, and in an already busy culture, uh, it, it almost feels like as parents, maybe you're, you're working overtime right now, trying to not just do your job, but also make sure that it's memorable and meaningful for your children, that they have gifts, and it seems like every year th those expectations just get heavier and heavier, doesn't it? Um, I don't know, it's like at one point, you know, you, you see something, uh, maybe an old Christmas movie, and like, uh, what is it, the Christmas story is very popular, and the kid's just so happy that he gets uh, the Red Rider and not like the leg lamp uh, that his dad has, right? And it's like, he's just so happy he got a Red Rider, and I feel like in, in our day, being a parent, it's like not only, like if we only got that for our kids, we'd be the worst parent ever, you know, we'd be uh, publicly social media shamed, because every kid deserves, you know, I don't know, a car at 12. It doesn't, they don't have to be able to drive it, just put it in the driveway, you know, and uh, and those expectations can kind of build on you. Uh, you got to plan to host family, attend parties, give gifts, make meals, and keep a smile on your face the whole time while you're doing it. Uh, and that's tough. Uh, it, it's, it's tough to kind of work through that. 
But if there's one thing that Christmas is known for, and I think it's something that we can and should embrace and try to preserve, Christmas is known most of all as a time of giving. Um, Characters like Santa or Santa's elves, uh, they're meant to remind us of generosity and the generosity that we should be exhibiting to one another. Uh, Movies like A Christmas Carol or The Grinch (laughs) that that they're showing on television right now, they remind us of you know, the Scrooges and the Grinches that we ought to not be like, right? And this is something that's been a part of, and it's really kind of rooted in the story of, you know, St. Nicholas. Some of the, the stories that we have actually uh, root themselves in truth, who used to go around and in a sock he would take money and he would drop it into the windows of the houses of the poor. Um, but at, at its root, Christmas is what? It's a reflection of the story of Christ's birth. It's, it's this celebration of the first advent of our Savior and the great generosity of the Father in sending his Son into the world. Um, ultimately, that's what Advent really is. It's that celebration. And so we're going to head in that direction for the next few weeks. We're going to be talking about generosity uh, for the next few weeks as we approach uh, celebrating Christmas Day. Now, I want to say a few things about generosity. Number one, as a pastor, many times it's one of the most uncomfortable things that you can talk about. Uh, n- number two, as a, as a member and as a hearer, it's one of the most uncomfortable things that you can hear me talk about, okay? And that's not lost on me, and so I wanted to start there. Uh, it's, I, it, the, the sensitive nature of talking about money, um, I think in the 9 and in the 1045, I'm going to say, listen, this isn't that moment where you lean over to your wife and you say, hold on to your pocketbook, you know, like that's, that's not going to hopefully what the tone will be. I also want to say, if you're a non-member, these sermons, particularly today's sermon, is going to be really pastoral. And so I want to make this disclaimer. If you're a non-member here, you may, may not even consider me your pastor, and that's okay. And I don't expect you to hear me as your pastor. But as I come across with a pastoral tone, if you do consider yourself a member here at Providence, or you are a member here at Providence, I'm trying to shepherd you and pastor you. Uh, Jesus talked about giving more than he talked about anything else. Money and possessions, he spoke about more than he spoke about anything else, even salvation, even in heaven and hell. And so when we talk about generosity in the next few weeks, I hope that you'll lean in. And there's a reason behind why I think it's important, particularly in Advent, that we discuss it. Um, finally, and this is maybe, maybe more of a family uh, mention here, uh, this is kind of around the dinner table. Uh, this is an area at Providence I think we need to grow. Um, I love you all dearly. And I long that you would, I'd long for you to experience the freedom that God offers in being a regular, cheerful, and sacrificial giver. Um, I long for us collectively to experience the freedom from worldly materialism and the joy of generosity because it truly is a joy. And Jesus isn't just saying that. Um, and so I love you enough not to ignore the topic uh, because it's uncomfortable, but to lean into it. And, and I think, here's the truth, God can help us grow here. God will help us grow here. And that as he helps us grow here, he's not doing so because he needs our finances or that his church needs our finances, but because of what generosity does for the heart in relation to our, to our submission to Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? So here's what I want to do. Let's pray and let's, uh, let's ask God to help us. Let's ask God to help us to have ears to hear and to listen in to his words And let's also pray that our hearts would be soft and follow ground for the truth of the word to be planted there, okay? So if you'll bow your heads, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to hop in. Father, first and foremost, we come to you in adoration and thanksgiving for the Advent season and what it represents. 
that you would not spare your own son, but that you would send him into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he being sinless would live a life of complete submission and perfection so that in the end he could give it up for your glory, Father, and for our good. We thank you for the gospel message that Christmas represents. And secondarily, Lord, we confess to you that our actions, our thoughts, and even our desires don't match up with that always. We don't match that generosity that you exhibited, even though we know you made us to. So, Lord, we ask for your help by the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you breathe a fresh wind of peace in the room? that we wouldn't have to clutch tightly to the things that the world tells us that we need to guard, but instead we'd hear your word and guard our hearts diligently from what things like money and possessions look to do to it, or maybe more accurately, Lord, what the enemy looks to do to our hearts through those things. We entrust ourselves to you, God. We love you, we honor you, and we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think the reason that Jesus spoke so much about generosity and particularly about money and possessions is because there's a powerful connection between your spiritual condition and your attitudes and actions concerning your finances. It's an integral connection that you can't, uh, you can't hide from. And Jesus even mentions this in, in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, he's saying, wherever our heart is about finances, whether it be through our, our actions or our desires, in the end, it's a reflection of where our heart is in submission to the lordship of Jesus. So a few things as we get started. And point number one is really going to be laying out a foundation for where we're going to go in Matthew chapter 6. Because I think there's a biblical foundation for generosity that is, that is rooted in how we view God and how we view ourselves. So before I jump in there, I have three major points that I think can help us. Number one, it's not enough to simply be debt-free uh, and, and basically to encourage the people of God to stay away from debt and consumerism. We actually have to talk about what it looks like to get to the root of our greed, selfishness, and stinginess by submitting ourselves in worship to Jesus Christ. To put it another way, very shortly, it's not enough to just say, hey, we should be good budgeters. We have to say we have to be good worshipers. Does that make sense? That finances are an integral part of that. They always have been. Number two, money is a discipleship issue, and we shouldn't just discuss it when it's fundraiser time. You guys know what I'm talking about? Money's a worship issue, so it's not, it's not enough for us to say, okay, now we have a building, so now we're going to talk about giving. I'm going to put the thermometer up here that we shade in as we start to give more, but never to be returned again to until, we, until the church is desperate for money again. The reason is because the heart consistently, regularly needs the shepherding that includes, and I would say should prioritize, how we steward our finances. We need it. And then lastly, we can't relegate to the sidelines what Jesus puts on the front line. And one thing that Jesus puts on the front line or at the very beginning and, and prioritizes in his discipleship, whether it be with his disciples or the Pharisees or the scribes or even the crowds, is finances. He says, let's talk about it. You guys remember the rich young ruler story? You remember as he discusses this with the rich young ruler, what it would look like to follow him? He says, listen, I've kept the law. Every single one of the laws, I've kept them. I could be your follower. And what does Jesus say? Sell every, you have everything except for one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. The rich young ruler is devastated. It says he walks away so sorrowful because he can't, he can't make that leap of submission with his finances to the Lord Jesus, even though everything else is there. 
And I love what the Bible tells us about that story because it says, why did Jesus, what was Jesus' motivation for saying that to that rich young ruler? It doesn't say that he just wanted to crush him. It doesn't say that Jesus was trying to diminish his pride because he had said he was a great man, right? No, it says Jesus loved him. And so he said to him, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. It was, a motiv- it was motivated out of the love that Christ had for this young man. That he would say, if you ignore this part of your life and you exclude it from your discipleship, it, natu- it naturally is going to impact everything else. You can't compartmentalize it. And so as a good pastor, I hope that I can be this morning. I don't think it's good for me to relegate that to the sidelines either, especially in a season in time where money is going to be a major part of our lives. Is it not? Like this month, we're going to be looking at our budgets more than anything. And if you don't, I promise you, you will in January. <laughs> All right? Some of you are like, I'd rather just not even see the carnage. You know, and then the credit card bill is going to come. And so let's talk about it now as we discuss what it really looks like to submit. So point number one is this. Giving is determined by how we view God and how we view ourselves. The Bible begins in this way. God is the owner of all things. We are the steward of God's things. God is the owner of all things. We are the steward of God's things. So you and I, we don't own things. We steward things that God owns, no matter what it is in your life. The Bible begins by telling the story of creation. I think there's two reasons that God ends creation with creating man. There's two reasons. You ever thought about that, why we were created on the sixth day and not the first day? There's two reasons. Number one, I think, is he loves us and wants us to know we are so valued. We're the apex of his creation. Every female should say amen. You were created very last. Right? You're the apex of God's creation. The best for last. Right? I do believe that God did that so that he would show to us how valuable we are. There's a second reason, though, and I think it's important. It ensures that no man can take credit for anything or pretend that he was involved in the counsel of God when things were created. It's important that we were created last so that God could say, all of this was here before you were here. All of this is mine before you were created. It singles us out as recipients of a generous God who has shared everything with us. There is not, this is how Paul says it, have you received anything that was not given to you? Do you have anything that was not received? That's really hard for us, particularly Americans, because we say, no, I earned what I have. Paul says, no, your theology should tell you, you got what you got because God's a generous God. From the breath and the air in your lungs to the car that you drive to the job that you go to, all of it is God's. Ownership of all things belongs to God. And a steward, what you and I are, it's a manager of assets. We are a manager of assets for our king and our God. I love what Matt Chandler says. He says this, There is nothing in the entire universe that God cannot look to and rightfully proclaim that is mine. You ever thought about that? I saw this news story, and then as I was preparing this sermon, I thought about it immediately. I don't know why this one jumped out to me. But did you guys see that the Mars uh, rover landed? Uh, it landed on Mars this week. So that's a big Houston story, right? Because we were part of that. It's awesome. I was just thinking the amazing feat of that, Mar- of that, that ship, that rocket, leaving Earth, the, the trip that it took, all the different things it had to navigate, and then for it to land, I, I think it said the speed that it was coming into the atmosphere, and then it had, to, it had to slow down to, I think, it was less than 11 miles an hour or something. It's incredible what they did. And they're all sitting there, and uh, I saw these, like, real, real nerdy scientists doing, like, a LeBron James handshake after it. Did you guys see that video? I was like, what are they doing? You know, anyway, but I was reminded of that when I was uh, preparing this sermon because I thought in my mind, God looks at that Land Rover, that entire expedition, and says, mine. Then the Lord said, no, 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 no. I look at Mars, and I say, that's mine. 
that blows my mind. When God looks at this entire thing, he, there's not one thing, the whole galaxy, all of it, that he can't rightly say, that's mine. I made that. It should blow your mind that he made that by the word of his power. Colossians gives you a picture of the supremacy of our God. And that we celebrate in Advent that that God entered into human history as a child, the one who all things were created by, through, and for his glory. It's incredible. Jonas, my son, um, he's four, so he struggles with sharing. If you're a parent, you probably get this right. It's not uncommon. Um, I, I, I regularly have to tell him to share. He doesn't quite understand even the concept, because when I say, son, share, he, he, he'll start to give over the toy, and then I'll say, son, that, that, you know, that was good sharing. Then he'll go, share. And by that, he means they should be sharing with him. I'm like, no, 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 son, you're supposed to be sharing. You give to them, right? Um, but the way that I tr I've been trying to walk with him through this is by getting him to share with me. Say, son, you know, can you, will you share with daddy? And by and large, I would say 99% of the time, Jonas is getting better, but it's at first no. Or no, you know, he kind of gives me these furrow brows. He's a furrow brow, real strong. He kind of pulls away, no. And, and here's what I say in my moments of uh, patient parenting. Son, this isn't your toy. I bought the toy for you, out of love for you. Then I shared the toy with you. And now you're refusing to share the toy back with me that's really mine. Uh, why am I doing that? I'm just being a jerk to my, my son? No. Hopefully not. I hope I'm not. Um, I asked Jonas to share not because I need him to. Because as weird as you may think I am, I really don't enjoy playing with these toys. Um, I don't need him to share with me. But I, I need him to share with me because of what it does for him. Because of what, what it reminds him of. It reminds him not just of our relationship, but it shows him that he's a steward of all the things that God has graciously given. Because as he grows up, there's going to be these moments where I'm able to start working more theologically with him when I can say, really, son, your dad doesn't own anything either. And, and I've been given everything by God. And if at the starting line of our money and our possessions, we don't remind ourselves that everything is God's, we will then proceed to utilize all of those finances, money, possessions, and assets in such a way that it's about us. It's my money, my possessions for my desires, my needs, my wants, and my family. But if our starting line is everything is God's, then and only then can we respond to everything that comes through a steward's eyes. I wanted to read a few scriptures to you that I'm hoping to shape into the heart and mind of my child. And these are from uh, different passages of scripture of, of the people of God and how they view finances. The first one is from 1 Chronicles 29, 14. The king says this, the king of Israel, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. The king of Israel said, I've never given anything to God that wasn't already his. And who am I that he would let me in on this exchange? Because he loves me. Another from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so he confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers, as it is to this day. Moses said, if you get any wealth, it is the Lord your God who has enabled you to gain it. 
or Job 41.11, as Job has this big struggle with the sovereignty of God and how God could allow the suffering in his life. He's just questioning like many of us question, and God in his grace reminds Job of this, everything under heaven belongs to me. Whatever's under the whole heaven is mine. That's hard. It seems harsh, doesn't it? It's what Job needs more than anything is a reminder of who God is. And then, of course, famous text from Psalm 24, verse number one. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything is the Lord's. And I pray that that Jonas, as he grows, begins to learn and he begins to be shaped by this because I think the lordship of God as owner of everything will inevitably shape the way he views his finances. And I think it's important. I think it's important because the tendency is to always lean back towards I earned this, this is my money, but the Christian should receive their paycheck and say, this is God's money, I am his steward. Lord, what would you have me do? How would you have me utilize what it is that you have given me graciously? Now, here's the good news for those of you who are scared of this because you're thinking, oh, that makes zero sense to me. I have so many things to do. Let me tell you this. God is a better father than you are, men. And therefore, what do we know about what God requires of you? Well, he says this. It was God that said you should provide for your family. Did it not? He said, if you do not provide for your family, worse off than an unbeliever. So if you say, why would I submit my finances to God? I gotta provide for my family. What you're saying is that God is not the one who has set that expectation on you and given you the ability to do so. He's the one who said that. How about this? Tending to your family's desires. Do you, Jesus said it like this. Uh, when your son asks for a, a, a loaf of bread, do you give him a serpent? Do you? That's, it's, hope, that's uh, rhetorical. Unless you're an animal free, kind of weird, like, I get that too. Hopefully you don't do that though. Hopefully you, you go above and beyond. And your son doesn't only ask for Mrs. Baird, you take him out to Tutti Frutti, you take him to give him ice cream. Here's what Jesus says. Are you better than your father in heaven? He knows how to good, give, give good gifts to his kids. So even your needs and desires get met if you're the provider for your home. Single moms in the room, I know that that can be a struggle. The Lord is the provider, and even your needs and desires will get met by your gracious Father. But the starting line is worship and submission to him. And that's what giving is. It's not only, giving isn't the only thing God calls us to do as stewards, but it's the first thing that he calls us to do as stewards, because giving reminds the heart that the Lord is the Lord of everything. I will say this, and then I'll move to point two. In relation to finances, there's no such thing as rich and poor in the, kingdom of, in the kingdom of God as much as there are good and bad stewards. There are funnels and there are cups. Funnels, God pours in so that we would pour out. Or God pours in and we look to contain what God has given and not to continue to bless down the line. That's the only two that there are. Good and bad stewards. So check this out. You can be a rich, good steward, or you can be a poor, good steward. You can be a rich, poor steward, or you can be a poor, poor steward. Does this make sense? You can have lots of money and be a terrible steward of God's assets, or you can have lots of money and be a great steward. You can have little to no money and be a fantastic steward of God's blessings, or you can have no money and be a terrible steward. And sometimes we, we relate these two and just say, oh, there's only two categories, rich and poor. No, 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 no. Jesus looked at the widow and said, she is the best steward. And she only had what would be considered pennies today. 
And she put the pennies into the coffers, and she said she has given more than anyone else that's even came up to the coffer this morning because she was a good steward of what God had given her. She understood the principle of lordship. Number two, and now we'll get into Matthew chapter number six. Giving starts with wisdom, and Jesus starts with wisdom. It's a wisdom issue. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter six when he starts to talk about giving. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus asks a simple question. Why are you investing money in the kingdom of rust and the kingdom of thieves? Seems like a legit question, right? That seems fair. He says, there's two kingdoms. There's my kingdom, the kingdom of God, where I have already promised you what that will look like. Then there's the current kingdom of the world that you and I live in that is broken and messed up. We've never bought something that didn't go out of style or date quickly. All right? If you don't believe me, how, how often has your iPhone needed updates? In the last six months? And for many of us, how many cracks are already on the screen? Anybody? When we bought that iPhone, it was beautiful, it was ready, you probably camped out in line for it. And now it is absolute mess, right? Like the iPhone 6 right now, you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't pay me to take it from you. And there was a time where it was amazing. The pixels were going to change lives. You've never bought anything that didn't go out of date. You never bought a car that didn't eventually break down or you sold it before to some schmuck that would then break down later, all right? You never bought a house that you didn't love at first and think that it would change your family's life and you didn't curse later because the lawn would not do what you wanted it to do. You've never had any possessions that weren't in danger of someone else breaking in and taking it from you with you not even being around to see it go. And Jesus says, why are you investing in that kingdom? Randy Alcorn says it like this, and the quote should be on the screen behind me. We don't just give because it's right. We give because it's smart. (laughs) I love that. If we store up our treasures on earth, then every day that moves us closer to death moves us further from our treasures. Christ calls us to turn it around. Store up treasures in heaven. That way, instead of every day moving away from our treasures, we're every day moving toward our treasures. We must ask ourselves, are you moving toward your treasures or away from them? Jesus just, he makes the simple wisdom issue. I love that Jesus doesn't shy away from saying that generosity on this side of things stores up for you rewards on the other side. And he doesn't blush when he says that. He says, this is what's happening in generosity. The faith that you exhibit in our generosity here stores up treasures for you that are eternal. Or we settle for what is really second rate at best. And Jesus says, why do you do that? It's like he's inquisitive about that kind of logic. He doesn't understand. So how do you know where we're storing up our treasures? Well, a few quick questions that maybe you can jot down, just prayerfully consider later. Uh, Do you give regularly or is it sporadic? If you give regularly, more than likely you understand this principle and you say, we have made it a staple in our lives to worship God in this way. If your giving is sporadic, then most likely you don't really trust these two kingdoms that Jesus is talking about, at least not at the financial level. Number two, when's the last time your giving stretched your faith? There's a way to automate giving that automates it in the heart too. And I love automated giving. I think it's fantastic because it helps me to not forget, and I'm one of the most forgetful people. My wife calls me a goldfish. You guys know about goldfish? It's like 10-second Tom, right? You don't, you don't remember things at all, all right? So I appreciate that. 
However, there's a way to automate it in the heart where if you're not careful later on, you don't even question what's happening behind the scenes of your finances and your generosity. And because this is worship, it should be revisited regularly in your family. It should be revisited to ask ourselves, how are we investing in the kingdom of God that stretches us to trust him as provider and ultimately not ourselves? And then lastly, is your giving joyful or strained? Now, I want to I be careful here because I know that there are times in our lives where things are very difficult. And I will say, strained might not have been the best word for me to choose because sometimes it can be strained and joyful, can't it? It could say, man, this is going to sting, but I trust you, Jesus. And there's a strain to that. But I think there's another side of that, which is begrudging obedience that Jesus is never after. That, that Christ is after our, our hearts. He's not after The finances. Paul reflected this last week. Eric talked about it a little bit when he said, I'm not after the gift, but the but what increases to your credit because of the gift. Paul says, listen, God's going to provide for me, whether through your hands or another means. But I want your heart to be shaped by that generosity. Therefore, I'm after your giving because I know what it'll do for you. And when we aren't cheerful givers, it doesn't actually produce the fruit that God so dearly wants, which is that we would treasure Christ and know him. Okay, point number three, and my final point is this. Giving is a worship issue. Giving is a worship issue. Jesus says two things in this portion of Scripture. The first one is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then later on, in a portion of this text that we did not read, in verse number 24, he says, no one can serve two masters because either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And in case you didn't know what masters he was talking about, he says, you cannot serve God and money. The original translations actually say you cannot serve God and mammon, which mammon was the pagan false god of money. He says, you can't serve both of these gods. Jesus most assuredly believes that the way in which we handle our finances is about worship. No way around it. He essentially gets to the heart of giving, and he says your, your wallet or your bank statement will always tell the story that your mouth doesn't want to admit. If we worship God, we will be givers. I know that's tough, but we have to let that land. Now, I need to tip my hand here, and not because of any other reason that I do want to be uh, helpful. I believe in the Old Testament tithe as a great principle for your life. I do. Um, it's one that my wife and I have lived by since we were, we were uh, young. Since I came to know Christ, I've lived by this. And uh, I always joke about this. Uh, in our premarital counseling, we did these expectations time. Did you guys ever do this for your wife? What's your expectations on your husband? Soon to be wife? What's your expectations on your spouse? My wife had, uh, it, it looked like one of Art's spreadsheets. You know, this was an Excel, it had color-coded. There were stars to denote different pages in the appendices. Mine had one point on it, that we would be givers. I want our family, I wanted to be up front with her to say, whatever is going to come in our way, we are going to apply the principle of tithing, and then we will pray about what we will give on top of that. That was personal conviction. I tell you that story not because I want it to glorify me. I tell you that story because as your pastor, I'm not telling you anything that I have not first applied long before I ever stepped foot on a stage and preached. And it has changed our lives. It has been so abundantly helpful and such a blessing to see God do what we couldn't do in times when I had two jobs and Morgan had three or I had three and she had two just so I could get up and preach to a group of snotty-nosed junior hires. God provided. 
And he did so in some of the most miraculous ways that if I didn't have only five minutes, I'd tell you about him. And I want that for you. And I, I do point back to the Old Testament tithe, and many would argue the basis for this. And I'm going to admit to you that I don't believe that we can make the case it's New Testament law. I don't think I can make that case. I think I can make a pretty compelling case that Jesus encourages us to follow it. And if you want to, you know, we can have coffee later and I could talk to you about that. But here's what I will say. Even if you're saying it's not a New Testament law court, tithing shouldn't be there for that, Jesus abolished that, uh, you shouldn't uh, lay that on my back. I would say that you, even though you could, you could potentially argue against it, I would question why 10% of your finances uh, is such an issue. And perhaps it's likely that your heart really isn't after God's truth and glory, but after your safety and security. So when you say that's not law and you get really vehement against that, I would say, are you doing that really because you want it to be about the truth of the New Testament and God's glory? Or are you doing that because somewhere I touched a nerve and you want to bring your systematic theology book and I want to bring what the Lord's bringing to the table, which is your heart. John Piper says that if you make the case that the New Old Testament tithe is no longer there for the New Testament, he says, that's fine, but it's definitely the floor and the ceiling should be very high. He says, you can't make the case that it's less. That's what he says. It's impossible to make the case that the New Testament church, that they were encouraged to do less than that. You can make the case that Paul said the Macedonians gave out of their complete lack, meaning they gave percentages well beyond what we could fathom. There are examples of this in church history. I could go on and on and on. John Wesley, at one point, uh, there's a chart somewhere, I think, on Desiring God that talks about John Wesley's giving, that at one point he earned 30 pounds, and so he only gave two pounds per year giving. That by the end of his life, he gave 1,000, or he earned 1,000 pounds a year, and he never stopped living his life on 28 pounds a year, which means at the end of his life, he gave almost 1,000 pounds every single year, and he died with nothing really to offer except for the coins that were in his pocket, because he gave it all away. I mean, it is drastic to say uh, that generosity should be less than what God has lined out for us in the principles of the Old Testament. Now, having said that, I want to be also uh, mindful to say sometimes 10% will hurt worse than for others. For some of you, you say 10% and it's not as much of a struggle. For some of you, you say, Court, you don't know my circumstances. And I will promise you this only because God promises you this. If you honor God with the 10, he will bless the 90. He will. Now, you might say, don't get prosperity on me. I'm going to get to the end where I'll actually read the Bible to you and make a case. Now, There's always a legitimate reason why giving might be tough. I love, this was a list that was made by another pastor, and I just thought it was really interesting and funny. Uh, it may be funny to you. It may not be. Hopefully, it's more funny than not. Um, he says, in January, you might not give because the Christmas bills are due. In February, because the fuel bills and the car upkeep. In March, because of income taxes. In April, because you got to get clothes for the kids for Easter. In May, because too much rain threatens the crops. In June, because too little, too little rain threatens the crops. In July, because of vacation expenses are coming up. In August, because vacation expenses need to be paid. In September, because the children's going back to school, they have needs, they have supplies. In October, because winter clothes, doctor bills. In November, because of the Thanksgiving trip. And then in December, you gotta do the Christmas shopping, so then back in January, because the Christmas bills are due. There's always, every month, a reason why we might not be able to do it. And yet, Jesus says this to us. He says, we prioritize what we prize. Worshiping God by being in covenant with him financially is the best and most wonderful decision my family's ever made. And I want to encourage you in the same. 
It regularly reminds me that my family and I, we don't provide for ourselves. It guards me from materialism and greed. The kingdom of God advances when I give. People's needs are met. The gospel goes forward. We're able to do more things for the sake of the gospel when I am generous. The false god of money is rejected and scorned every time I tithe. And he gets scorned publicly and privately because of it. We are able to experience God's provision and blessing in real, tangible ways because of giving. We get to see the joy in the lives of others as God not only lets us bless him in worship through tithes, but in the moments when we're able to meet people's real needs in giving. I am freed from the slavery of money and the anxious toil that comes along with it. I am freed from the expectation that everything is on my shoulders and that if I don't do it all, that my family cannot make it. I'm storing up treasures in heaven that will never be taken away from me. And lastly, and most importantly, Jesus is glorified every time it happens. And listen, I want to close with this thought. God knows. God knows the real reason behind our lack of generosity. The control issues that exist. Hear me on this. Listen to me for just a moment. The control issues behind money lets me do what I need and want. Money lets me make others do what I need and want. Money lets me get what I need and want. The fear issues behind this lack of generosity. No one's going to care about you unless you care about yourself. Right? I must be the one to take care of my loved ones because if it's not me, who's going to do it? There's not enough for everyone to go around in this world. You have to look out for you. And then even the pride issues that exist. I deserve this. I earned this. No one will dictate my wallet. Not even you, preacher man. God knows these issues so intimately. What is his response to us? You might be thinking that his response to us is a show of power and how he owns. No. God's response to all of those things in Advent is to say, I'll give you the greatest gift ever given. I'll give you my son. And in the face of all of our fears, in the face of all of our control, all of our pride, Jesus goes to the cross to give himself to free us from it. He says, I will not only give financially, I will not only give materially, I will give my life. You see, in Advent, there's this story of three wise men that they surround a manger with a baby. And in the midst of worship, they give gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They give gifts to this baby. I've always found that to be a really interesting text. The headline is this, wise men know Jesus and worship him through giving. They came from all across the world to do one thing, kneel at the foot of a manger and give. And so Providence, I want to do this this morning. Hear the words of the scripture that promise God's blessing to his children who give. And then I'll pray for you as we take communion. This is from Paul in 1 Corinthians. Now this I say to you, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one of you do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. From Malachi. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the window of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. 
or from the book of Luke. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap. If you'll stand to your feet, let me pray for us. God, I want to first thank you that you are a matchless giver. Thank you that as I breathe in, the air is from you. As I breathe out, the air is from you. Thank you right now that the very temperate climate that we experience in this room is because you're an abundant giver. And Lord, I confess to you that our generosity doesn't match. But Jesus, I thank you that you've seen us where we are and you've loved us where we are. God, I pray against the enemy's condemnation this morning that would look to accuse the brethren that would look to bring complete and utter despair if this is an issue. And instead, Holy Spirit, I pray for your sweet, wounding conviction that brings healing to the heart like a great surgeon. Holy Spirit, do in us what we could never do in ourselves. Make us a generous people to your glory. Do it in our families, Lord. Invest it in our children. May there never be a moment where our children don't know the truth about who truly provides for our homes, our lives, and this church. God, you and you alone are the owner of all things. And we submit to you as your sons and daughters, may we be great managers of the assets you've given. We worship you, Lord. We reject the God of materialism. We reject the God of money. And instead, Lord, we choose you, our God and King. We love you, in Jesus' name.